Wild Weasel number 15. Or, if you listened before, then welcome back. Boy, it's been a long time, huh? This is the first Wild Weasel of 2018. So Happy New Year, everybody! Yeah, huh? I wish I could have done more episodes between Christmas and now, but that sort of rolls into the idea that I wish I could have done more wargaming between Christmas and now. But a lot of stuff happened, including moving from one side of Portland to the other, working a full ICU schedule in a month that I thought I would have more time off, and then flying around a lot for work-related things, and one very non-work-related thing that I'll talk about a little bit later. But I have to say that for the past four months, I haven't been in any shape to sit down and go through the news in a way that's expected of your Wargaming NPR host. I did get to play some games, and you can even see a video of one of them, which is me playing against my mortal frenemy, Tom Chick, in Phil and Matt Eklund's PAX Renaissance. It's not a war game, but it is a very interesting historical essay. And if you have 53 minutes... You can see what happens when a bunch of wooden blocks and chess pieces go rampaging across a map of cards that represent the Renaissance. There is a link to that on the podcast page. Something you won't see a video of yet is me painting miniatures. I used to build plastic models when I was a kid, and was always really jealous of the kids whose parents could afford to buy them airbrushes. So, now that I'm an adult, I bought one, and plan to use it to paint little miniature guys that come in games like Gloomhaven. If you're not familiar with that, it's a detailed historical simulation of what happens when elves get Panzerfausts. I also got some brushes, but still need some paint. And an air compressor. That's all kind of a work in progress. But you didn't come here to hear my musings on which combination of paint makes for the best weathered leather armor effect. And yes, I did manage to sift through the news, as well as sit down and write some thoughts about a few games I've played recently. I also have an interview with a gentleman who has completed a trilogy of games about the wars of the British Empire. How colonialist is that? It's a great talk, and we'll get to it shortly. But first, the news. There's a new podcast on the block. If your block extends down to San Diego, I guess. That would be a long block for me. Harold Buchanan, designer of Liberty or Death, has a podcast out called Harold on Games which is an absolutely great interview show where he talks to interesting designers and gets them to talk about their designs. So far, he's had the inimitable Volker Runke, the equally inimitable, but for different reasons, Cole Werley, and also Bruce Mansfield of the upcoming Gandhi coin game, and Tank Duel's Mike Bridgeshelli. Harold has a great podcast voice, as well as a bit of insouciance to his delivery, which makes listening to the whole thing quite enjoyable. Check out Harold on Games at ConflictSimulations.com or on iTunes. And I'm not just saying that because he listed me as one of the top 10 Wargame-related Twitter accounts to follow. You can follow Harold at at HBCanon2 on Twitter. Legion Wargames has a brand new pre-order available called Prelude to War by Serge Gainsbourg. I mean, Serge Betancourt. It's described as a three-player game about the political, diplomatic, and military maneuvering that preceded the outbreak of World War II. The game description mentions a, quote, challenge mechanism uh, which doesn't involve rolling any dice. It's sort of a bluff-counter-bluff mechanic, but there is definitely dice rolling in the game, uh, as well as card draws and hand management. So Legion has a very nice AAR posted on the game's page, but you have to click on the More Details button to see it, but it's there. And while it's a little overwritten with narrative, the actual gameplay boxes are instructive. And there's also plenty of luck, so I think the statement that the resolution of these challenges does not involve any dice rolling, that's a direct quote, is a bit disingenuous. It involves bluffing and the use of cards. There is randomness in the game. Embrace it. Don't run away from it. 
More on that later. Paper Wars number 90 has MacArthur colon The Road to Patan by Jack Green scheduled for later this year. That's a reprint from Wargamer magazine number 44, originally published in 1985. At least, I think it will be later this year. Issue number 88 is out now and has Stephen Newberg's Scourge of God, which is a solitary game about the Mongol invasions. Issue number 89 will be The White War, about the Austro-Hungarian offensive on the Italian front in the spring of 1916. Actually, it's already June, right? So, well, maybe we're looking at next year for Jack's game. Uh, Jack's game Bear Flag Republic is still available for pre-order at One Small Step Games. Uh, See the link on the podcast page for details on that one. Now, since I mentioned Paper Wars, which is published by Compass Games, let's get through the rest of Compass Games' schedule, which is quite ambitious. First of all, Adam Starkweather's OSS, or Operational Scale System, is off and running with Korea, colon, Fire and Ice, which covers the first year of the Korean War with a system reminiscent of Frank Chadwick's Road to the Rhine from 1981. And the system uses impulse-based movement, that seems to encourage players to exhaust the other player's reserves in any given turn. The combat system emphasizes types and amount of support as the counters don't have explicit combat factors printed on them. Turns are one week long. Hexes are either 7 miles across or 10 miles across, depending on whether you believe the webpage or the rulebook, and counters represent mostly regiments and divisions. From reading the rules, it sounds like a very interactive game, although I'd like to see how the combat system feels in practice. It's also a bit disappointing to see all the errata that had to be issued for the rules. Make sure you go to the appropriate BoardGameGeek thread to get the corrections. And, um, the typos. It's still $64 at the pre-order price last time I checked, $85 when that goes away. Red Poppy's campaigns, colon, Last Laurels at Limanova, is John Gorkowski's entry in the Eurovision Alliteration Contest for this year, and covers an Austro-Hungarian offensive against the Russians in November 1914. I think there may be some tax benefit this year to releasing games specifically about the military operations of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. John Gorkowski designed the intriguing strategic-level World War I game Balance of Powers, so I'm more likely to pay attention to a game by him about an obscure World War I offensive than by, well, someone else. He also designed the In the Trenches tactical World War I system. You can check out his newest at compassgames.com. It will be $65. You can get it for $50 right now as a pre-order. Vietnam colon Rumor of War is another OSS game, that's Operational Scale System, that will cover the Vietnam War. Having read the Korea Fire and Ice rules, I'm not sure how effective I think the system will be at covering the Vietnam conflict, so that's one game I'm not pre-ordering until I hear more about it or actually hear about people who have played it. But you can get it from Compass Games right now as a pre-order. And by the way, Compass Games has shipped games. Uh, They recently shipped two reissues of games I'm quite fond of, namely African Campaign by John Edwards, that was first published in 1973 by Jedco Games, and Red Star White Eagle, first published in 1979 by Game Designers Workshop. Both are excellent games, and the reissues are quite nice. I'm very pleased with them. Eric Lee Smith's Battle Hymn Volume 1, colon, Gettysburg and P. Ridge, is out from Compass Games as well. This one has an interesting history. It was originally supposed to be a Clash of Arms production, I think, uh, of the Gettysburg The Tide Turns board game as part of the Kickstarter for that game's digital release. Well, Shenandoah Studio, which was the developer, went under, had its IP bought by Slytherin, and Gettysburg The Tide Turns was released uh, on iOS in the App Store last summer. Now you get Gettysburg and P. Ridge as part of a single box, which by its subtitle, Volume 1, implies there will be more volumes. I really like Eric Lee Smith's Civil War designs, and I'm looking forward to trying this out. I also have to give Eric and Compass Games kudos for fulfilling their Kickstarter pledges that included the boxed game, even though I doubt that money ever made it to Compass. Gregory M. Smith, designer of The Hunters, has designed Pacific Tide, colon, the United States vs. Japan, comma, 1941-45, and you can pre-order it from Compass Games from $42. Uh, This is described as, and I quote, a compact strategic-level game that utilizes a unique and fast-paced card-driven combat-slash-build system revolving around carrier operations. Hmm. It also comes with a bot for solitaire play. Now, I love games about the Pacific War, uh, especially ones that don't take forever to play, which this sounds like it doesn't, so we'll see how this one turns out. I'm looking forward to it. 
France 1944 is a game published by Victory Games in 1986 and designed by Mark Herman about France and the year 1944 and all the things that happened there in those times. As part of their designer signature series, Compass Games will be releasing this in a revised edition with deluxe components and a mounted map. Furthermore, there will apparently be a new game called Russia 1944 that it says will join up with France 1944 to give you a full view of the European theater in the year 1944. Now, there's no word if that's going to be designed by Mark Herman or by someone else, but it's intriguing, and I'll follow up on this. Another reprint coming from Compass is John Paniski's Hearts and Minds, which was originally published in 2010 by Worthington Publishing, and then as an upgraded edition, thanks to a Kickstarter, four years later. Hearts and Minds is, in my opinion, one of the better Vietnam games out there. And while I don't see anything in this edition that would make you want to replace the 2014 version if you already have that, if you don't own the game at all, this is something you should definitely investigate. The $52 pre-order price is almost $25 cheaper than the going rate on the Board Game Geek Marketplace. And the fact that the game holds its value over several years usually means it's good, and in this case, my personal experience seems to confirm that. So, take a look for yourself. I urge you. By the way, I think I mentioned it on a previous episode that John Kranz of Consum World joined Compass Games full-time last year, and it's great to see him now in a video entitled Compass Games Live Episode 1, in which he gives an outline of Compass Games' new release timeline and some game features. I have a look to that on the podcast page. Check it out. So, in the really irritating things category, Tiny Battle Publishing released Brian Train's Chili 73 as a folio game about a subject I'm really interested in, and by designer, Brian Train, who I think has a great track record of covering this sort of conflict. So, I bought it sight unseen. And it turns out that the game has some map errors, rules emissions, and counter misprints. Ouch. But what's even more irritating is that Tiny Battle's solution was to release the corrections as a download. So I'm supposed to make my own counters now? Further, they released the rules as part of this download and didn't even incorporate the rules corrections from the corrections and clarifications sheet in the same download. So, even though I got a new downloadable rule set, I still have to write in my own corrections? What's going on? Even crazier is that according to a post on BoardGameGeek by Brian Train, there was errata that had been submitted to Tiny Battle and simply didn't make it into the game. Now, this seems incredibly sloppy and makes me much less likely to buy any Tiny Battle's product until someone else has reviewed it and caught any errors. One thing I do appreciate is how active Brian Train is on forums answering rules questions, but it really seems like his publisher let him down big time. This is all at tinybattlepublishing.com. Oh, the corrections are at Wargame Vault. If you want to put together your own games, why not just go to High Flying Dice Games? Paul Robot's company has a few new games out, including Gone to Pieces about the Battle of Bin Gia, which took place in the Mekong Delta in late 1964 and early 65. Or, if you'd rather fight a battle from the Austro-Prussian War, then you... Wait, there was another war in 1866? Oh yeah, the Chincha Islands War between Spain and its former colonies. And the game is called Price of Honor, and it's about the Battle of Calao, or Callao, or, as the Spanish call it, the Battle of Dos de Mayo. You'd really just like to know what it's about, right? Okay, it's a Spanish fleet attack on the fortified Peruvian port of Callao, or Calao. It sounds like it could be a solitary game, given that one side is the immobile Peruvian port defenses, but it's for two players. If you'd just like to stick to World War II, Paul has, but not in vain, a game about the siege of Calais during the Battle of France. High-flying dice products are desktop publishing quality, but they're done quite nicely, and you don't have to print them yourself. They arrive all printed. Uh, You can get mounted counters, but even if you do that, you still have to cut them apart, and they do cost a little extra. Check all these out at hfdgames.com. Revolution Games is shipping Königsberg, the Soviet attack on East Prussia in 1945, and discounting it to $36 from $45. Mine arrived the other day in a nice Ziploc bag. Jack Green's Hitler Strikes North is also available for $39 from them in a Ziploc bag. Longstreet Attacks, about the second day at Gettysburg, is available in two versions, a box version for $45 and a Ziploc for $40. That's marked down from $60 and $50 respectively. That's at revolutiongames.us. Michael Ranella's Stalingrad for Done on the Volga is finally out. Yes, Last Stand Games, which is part of Against the Odds, has a box version available from their website for $100. 
My copy just arrived, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this project shaped up. The next game Last Stand is advertising is Beyond Leipzig, colon, the 1813 campaign by John Prados, using the Beyond Waterloo system. This has been floating around on the constant world forums for years, so it's nice to see that it's going to get some real development time, and presumably a release at some point. And that's at laststandgames.com. As I mentioned before, Jack Green's Bear Flag Republic is still available for pre-order. Now, this is a game about California during the Mexican War, and given Jack's design history, I'm really anxious to see it. It's $62.95 at One Small Step Games, and I have a direct link to its page on the Wild Weasel Links page for this episode. Now, there's also the usual Thai Bomba alternate history stuff on pre-order from them. Now it's, what if the Soviets had attacked first in 1941? Uh, they would have run out of gas in about 10 minutes. And what if the Soviet Union had attacked in 1953? Uh, we wouldn't be here. If you like this kind of alternate history stuff, you can check it out on the pre-order page at One Small Step once you are done pre-ordering Jack's game. That's at ossgamescart.com. Europa Simulazioni's The War of Gridisca is out, and now the company has a game for pre-order called Costoza Fields of Doom. I think I mentioned this in a previous Wild Weasel because it's a game about two separate battles that happened almost 20 years apart on the fields and hills around Costoza, which is a small town in Italy. It's based on a regimental and battalion-level game system called Risorgimento, which is subtitled The Operational Games System. Hmm. Go to italianwars.net and learn all about it. At napoleongames.com, all in-print games are 10% off. That means you can get Napoleon's Resurgence and Napoleon's Quagmire for $98 each, plus shipping. Napoleon Retreats is 30% off, which means you get it for $68, but... It also isn't available until February 2019 at the earliest because that's a pre-order. That's Kevin Zucker's company, Operational Studies Group, at napoleongames.com. Just turn your headphones down when you go to the webpage or you'll get your ears blasted by trumpets. 1985, colon, Under an Iron Sky is an odd duck. It's from Thin Red Line Games, which is an Italian company started by a guy named Fabrizio Vianello, who goes by Han Barca on BoardGameGeek. Now, why do I care what Hanley goes by on BoardGameGeek? Well, the game itself came out in kind of a strange way. Fabrizio posted on BGG that he was publishing a game that would be a spiritual successor, as he put it, to SBI's The Next War with a similarly large scale. And he teased it with info on BoardGameGeek and posted pictures on his site at trlgames.com. And people started posting comments like, hey, I want that! And this turned into a kind of reservation system on BoardGameGeek to the point that when the game came out, there were only a handful of copies left, and it sold out in a matter of days. Now, we're not talking sold-out concert ticket sales here, of course. I think Fabrizio posted that he had printed about 400 copies, with 200 sent to the U.S. to reduce shipping costs. In any case, this is another one of those times where you really have to be on the ball and watching BoardGameGeek or Consum World to know what's happening. The first post on the Consum World forums went up in January of this year, and there was buzz about it beforehand, but really, it's so easy to miss this stuff. Anyway, if you don't have a copy by now, you need to wait for a reprint. Or see if someone wants to sell his copy on the secondary market. It's a big game, having been priced at 160 euros, and with shipping and the currency conversion, that's over $200. Fabrizio was taking requests for a reprint uh, edition to gauge interest, but it sounds like he already has his, uh, another project in the works, and it's called C3. Uh, less than 60 miles. I'm not a big fan of that title, but I'm a big fan of the game I think it's going to reprise, which is SPI's NATO Division Commander. And I think Fabrizio is an unabashed full to gapper, which is all right with me. One thing I can say about 1985 colon under an iron sky is that while the box is oversized, all the components could fit in a normal size box from what I can tell. In fact, all that the oversized box does is allow the map and components to slosh around in there during shipping. Now, I think the increased size might have something to do with allowing for room for counter trays once you get all the counters punched and clipped, but I've got a little crease in the edge of one of my maps as a result. Maybe some kind of box insert for shipping would have helped. Anyway, I have a link to the pod- on the podcast page to the relevant Board Game Geek thread, as well as the game thread on the Consum World forums if you want to check those out. Now, there have been a number of war games on Kickstarter since we last checked, but it's been a while, and these have all really closed. Although you can get some of them, so let's go through things. Uh, there was a game called No Motherland Without, designed by Dan Bullock, about the struggle between the Kim Dynasty and the West. I thought this was really interesting. It was for two players, and the title is a reference to a North Korean song, No Motherland Without You, which was a cult of personality reinforcement tune about Kim Jong-il. Now, this one isn't exactly a war game, 
but I think it could be interesting for those people who like geopolitics and like more contemporary themes. Unfortunately, it failed to meet its funding goal, so uh, it's not available. I don't know if it ever will be, but I expect it'll come back at some point. So you should keep this on your radar and uh, keep your eyes out for it. Uh, Dan Bullock, No Motherland Without. Maybe it'll show up again. Now, for successful Kickstarters, a Columbia Games-specific victory met its funding goal, and the Kickstarter has closed to the $69 price, including shipping, is no longer available. But you can still get it for $79.99 plus shipping. I don't play the Columbia Block games. Okay, I play Rommel in the Desert. But maybe someone else can tell me how this one turns out, since I'm not planning on purchasing it. If you have any experience with it uh, before the next podcast, let me know, and I can talk about it. Further down the list of what might be interesting to war gamers is a game called Deep War, which is a card game from Italy. Uh, This treats the different sides in the game as factions, um, and it's a World War II theme deck builder. And when I say World War II theme, I mean it's a theme. The reason that I mention it at all is just that it has this very interesting pitch, and I do quote, Do you know what effective armor thickness means and how you calculate it? Do you know how a super turbocharger and an epicyclic transmission work? If you already knew or not, you will find a very interesting break. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this who know what those things are. Or not. If you want a break, you can look for it in retail. As that Kickstarter is closed, I don't see a way to pre-order it right now. Um, Another failed Kickstarter, but this one that got a second chance, is Anaconda, a game from Alex Bogosi that unfortunately didn't make its Kickstarter goal last year, but it got picked up for publication by Decision Games. Congratulations, Alex. This game is about the Union strategy of blockading the South in the Civil War and will be out at an unspecified time. What is specified is the price. $40 pre-order, $60 retail. There's a link on my page or go to decisiongames.com. Now, there were a couple other Kickstarters that have closed, but are accepting pre-orders. The first is Thunder in the East, published by Victory Point Games and designed by Frank Chadwick. Frank Chadwick is one of about three designers, the other two of whom are Mark Herman and John Butterfield, maybe throw Kim Kanger in there, whose work is immediately interesting to me, even if the subject matter might not be. In this case, the subject matter is interesting, as it's a core-slash-army-level simulation of the entire Eastern Front. It's part of Frank's new ETO, or European Theater of Operations system, and they're already working on the second game in the series, which is about the Med during World War II, and it's called The Middle Sea. And my question is this. If it's at the core level for the Germans and the army level for the Soviets, why does it have over a thousand counters? It also has cards, dice with little airplanes on them, and 16-player aid sheets. Over 600 people supported the Kickstarter, but you can still pre-order the game, even though the Kickstarter is closed price will be $139, which is up from the Kickstarter price of $99. Uh, Go to the link on the Wild Weasel page for details. The second closed Kickstarter is Blitzkrieg in the West from a new company called Canvas Temple Games. This project is a France 1940 game done at what looks like the division level but with some smaller units, as well as detailed air and naval combat. Because it's designed by Joe Miranda, it has a bunch of optional rules, which start on page 24. 300 people back this one, and I'm not sure how many games they're actually going to print. They'll be selling the game from Canada's Temple Publishing's website once the game is available. The Kickstarter price was $55. I have a link to that Kickstarter on the podcast page. Hollandspiele has a new game by Robert Dulesky. It's Robert's first game design. It was originally created for Board Game Geek's Print and Play Contest. It won the contest, too. It's a solitaire game called The Wars of Marcus Aurelius. It covers the wars against the Western Barbarians in the 2nd century AD and costs $45. The version available for Hollenspiel is a redeveloped and expanded version, not just a reprint of the print-and-play version from BoardGameGeek. There's also a new entry in the Swords and Shields 2 series called The Great Heathen Army, which covers a bunch of battles between Alfred the Great and the Vikings, as well as some other Saxon defenders and Viking encroachers. There are eight battles in this one, unlike the other Swords and Shields games, which are one-scenario affairs. But this game is $50, whereas the other titles are under $40. Let me just add this editorial comment. The Swords and Shields 2 system is great. I have both the Grunwald Swords and Battles on the Ice games, have played them, and went to the trouble of getting mounted maps for them both because I like them so much. I think I mentioned in a previous podcast how well I think the Swords and Shields 2 system does medieval warfare, and if you haven't tried this series, you should. These games are all available at hollandspiele.com. 
Also, if you like Supply Lines of the American Revolution, colon, the Northern Theater, Hollandspiele has released Supply Lines of the American Revolution, colon, the Southern Strategy. Yeah, huh? It's all about Francis Marion and whatnot. Or at least Francis Marion's supplies. I've played the previous game and liked it. You don't need that one to play this one, though, as the Southern Strategy is standalone. Kind of like the South, huh? I mean, yeah. Flying Pig Games has Armageddon War, which was a successful Kickstarter available for $75, which is $25 off the retail price, along with two $35 expansions and a strategy guide. This is sort of a future Cold War in the Middle East with everybody fighting type thing. It looks like it has Flying Pig's signature giant counters. The game is supposed to ship in May 2018, but my calendar says it's June, and it doesn't seem like it's shipping quite yet, so we'll see. I guess that's why you can still get the 25% off pre-order price. And that's at flyingpiggames.com. MMP, which you may know as Multiman Publishing, announced a few new titles, including a battalion combat series game called Brazen Chariots, about the Tobruk Battles in 1941. If you haven't read Robert Crisp's North Africa memoir of the same name, you should. The MMP version will probably have more paper and cardboard than Crisp's slim volume, though. If you're really into North Africa, MMP also announced a game called Ariete. Yes, the same as the 132nd Italian Armored Division in the tactical combat series about the defense of Bir el-Gubi against the British 22nd Armored during Operation Crusader. Ariete's pre-order price is $27, with $36 planned at retail. Brace and Chariots the Game is $72 pre-order, $96 retail. Brace and Chariots the Book is $10 used at Amazon. Also, Front Toward Enemy, about tactical engagements in Vietnam, is still available for pre-order. You save $22 off the retail price on that one. And the OCS game Smolensk, Barbarossa Derailed, has reached its pre-order number. You knew that was going to happen. And it wouldn't be a new year if there wasn't one ASL module in the reprint queue. Right now, it's Armies of Oblivion. Now, I can never remember which one is which. Armies of Oblivion or Doom Battalions? Oh, and the Forgotten War module actually came out. The Korea one, yeah? It's sitting on my shelf. I really wonder what it's like, but that means I would have to dive back into ASL to find out. And maybe next year. There's a link to this stuff on my page, or you can go to multimanpublishing.com. So, we haven't talked about GMT yet, and boy, is there a lot of stuff going on with them. I don't even know where to begin, so let's just talk about a few exciting things, because I'm sure there are going to be even more things announced this month, so it's pointless to try and talk about everything. Just read the GMT update emails, which you can find on their website, and which I know you all get. Now, the thing I'm looking most forward to is Volker Runka's new design, Nevsky, colon, Teutons and Rus in Collision, comma, 1240-1242. You can hear Volker talking about it on Harold Buchanan's podcast, in fact. But there are a million more things. Mark Herman and Jeff Engelstein are collaborating on a game called Versailles 1919. There will be a new version of Mark Herman's Peloponnesian War, so you don't have to run around trying to find a copy on the secondary market anymore. And there's a game called Atlantic Chase, which I thought would be a revision or a reprint of Atlantic Storm. You know, that game from like 1998. And that turns out to be a whole different thing with hexes and blocks and trajectories. And oh boy, I can't quite tell what's happening with that thing, but it looks intriguing. So check that out. Plus, a bunch of stuff is shipping. I got Cataclysm, Fort Sumter. Those arrived last week. And also got charged for Hitler's Reich. So I'm looking forward to that showing up soon. And GMT also has a brand new website. From what I can tell, it's bigger. Uh, the, the print is bigger. And probably now using modern architecture. Now, if we could only get the Consum World Forums to follow their lead. Oh, well. For a trip back to 1995, visit talk.consumworld.com. And for the latest from GMT, go to gmtgames.com. Uh, unless you then click on the Inside GMT link, which takes you to a different domain called insidegmt.com, which then has no links to the main GMT page proper, so you have to either click the back button a bunch of times or manually type gmtgames.com into the browser window. And then I don't see a link on the website anywhere to their GMT email update. Like I said, they have a new website. And that's the news. So today on Wild Weasel, we have designer Ben Madison. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, how do you do? Good. Um, so, Ben, I've played a lot of your games. I really like a lot of your games. Um, I am going to um, introduce you to our listeners by saying that <clears throat> among the many things you've done, you have done something called the British Wars Trilogy. And for 
these British wars, you've chosen the American Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and the Falklands. How did you come up with those three? I write, uh, my philosophy on designing games is I design the games that I wish someone else had designed. Mm -hmm. And so these were games that I didn't like the other approaches that people had taken. And so I wanted a really small American Revolution War game. I wanted a really small Napoleonic game. And I wanted a good Falklands game. Okay. And those are all rarities. <laughs> okay. Sounds, sounds reasonable. Uh, I know that there is another Falklands game that takes a different approach than what you took, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but you wanted a small Napoleonic game. So is that a... Uh, uh, and your Napoleonic game, I, I will point out, is a, is a, um, it's a solitaire game. Actually, all three of your games are solitaire games, so let's, let's make that clear That's as correct. well. Um, but, the, but the Napoleonic game is a solitaire game in which you play the British, or basically the British, and you kind of tease the coalition, uh, and the French are your enemy. How, did, was it hard to come to that? Because that seems like a fundamental shift. Now, we're, we're probably going to talk about Napoleon uh, and the Napoleonic Wars on, a, on another podcast, because I have a lot of questions, but tell me just a little bit about that decision. Well, it, uh, it started out because the, um, the American Revolution game, uh, you played the British, which is an unusual position to take in a solitaire game on the right. revolution. And so I just decided to apply that as well to N. Um, I, I've learned from the reaction to the game that most people seem to enjoy playing Napoleon rather than Napoleon's enemies. Hmm. Um, I think that says a lot about the uh, people who, who are into Napoleonics and everything, that people admire Napoleon as a historical figure. Uh -huh. I just wanted to do something different. I mm -hmm. wanted to look at the, the logistics and the strategy of dealing with Napoleon as as the threat to Europe, right? And that you have to you have to put the coalition together. You bankroll the coalition, which is sort of funny to think of it as a British war, but in reality, it it largely was. The British were largely responsible for the the financial support for all the enemies of Napoleon, and right. I just thought that would make a good game. Yeah, well, I, I'm not a military historian. I'm a political <laughs> science major, yeah. and so that's sort of how I approach games. I, I like a lot of politics in my games. I like a lot of diplomacy. And uh, that's that's what led to end. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that in there. It's, it, and it, of course, it's appropriate. I mean, if you're going to have a British Wars trilogy and they're all solitaire games, you should all probably play it British. But uh, but mm -hmm. I, I found that, and of course, in, in many, uh, you know, most Napoleonic games, even the ones with, with diplomacy, the only two powers that are fixed, right? It's always the French versus the British because everybody else was, was allied with Napoleon at some point. Um, right. So that I mean that makes perfect logical sense, but um, but will you uh, is there any did you have any inspiration because I noticed uh, in um, uh, Don't Tread on Me is your is your uh, American Revolution game did did you get any inspiration from Dave Kershaw's Vietnam I thought that was a little similar yeah Vietnam Solitaire uh, from White Dog Games Vietnam Solitaire special edition actually it's billed as yeah which I think is a really underappreciated game it's it's got an incredibly short rule book, like six pages or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's got a lot of really clever um, ways that, that Dave Kershaw, you know, and I urge all your listeners to, to investigate Dave Kershaw's games on Board Game Geek, uh, because he, he likes to do uh, sort of odd conflicts. And um, he's got a real eye for translating grand strategic military things into really simple game mechanics. And mm -hmm. that's one thing that really appealed to me about Vietnam Solitaire. He had this, this mechanic where the deployment of the Viet Cong forces is based on infiltration through the Ho Chi Minh Trail of um, uh, you know, infiltrators from North Vietnam. And when I was looking at that game, I realized, I had this light bulb moment, that you could take these these sort of base camps that are supplying arms to the Viet Cong, and I could just replace that with ships from France supplying arms to the American revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. And it just it just struck me as you know this is this is the sort of game that I want to design on the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And then all the other games, the two other games in the series, on the, the the trilogy, um, they're all based on the same thing, the same mechanic, just reapplied in different ways. So in the Revolutionary War. Those units are ships from France bringing supplies to the um, to the Continental Army. Mm -hmm. In the Napoleonic Wars, the same units are used as diplomats, mm -hmm. which have diplomatic uh, uh, impact on what's going on, and they can they can uh, 
bring support for Napoleon's forces. And then in Thatcher's war, they're ground-based air units that send uh, air fleets over the Falklands. But it's exactly the same rule, more or less. Just ish, uh, yeah, using okay. The same, ish, yeah, using the same type of mechanic for three radically different things. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the Falklands, let's get to the Falklands. Mm-hmm. Um, I've right. had <clears throat> had some experiences with people who, uh, I mentioned the game about the Falklands, and they sort of roll their eyes and say, well, <laughs> who's going to play the Argentines? I mean, it was just a walkover, right. right? I don't think people really quite understand the history of the Falklands. Can you enlighten those people a little bit? Well, it the British were operating with, what was left of their fleet after all the budget cuts of the 70s at an 8,000-mile supply chain uh, with no foreign support in the Southern Hemisphere. And everything had to go through tiny little Ascension Island in the middle of the Atlantic, which was actually an American Air Force base on British soil. So they had to get our permission to use their own island as a staging point in this. It was it was one of those damn close run things. It was not the walkover that it that it seemed. And you know, the Argentines will if you read Argentine accounts of the battles, they'll say, Oh well, we were, we only surrendered when we were overwhelmed by colossal numbers of British forces. Mm-hmm. That never happened. Right. The Argentines always outnumbered the British in every engagement they fought in the islands. And so it was it was British professionalism, small numbers versus a conscript army that really didn't want to be there and, you know, had some sentimental attachment to the islands, but, but uh, fighting for them was not what those, those poor kids wanted to do that had been sent to the Falklands. Right. And, and when you say that, that, you know, the conscript army didn't want to be there, they, they still, their officers, I think, failed them because they, they could have mounted a much better defense than they did. I think there was right. a lack of military discipline. And, uh, uh, but the British themselves, and you mentioned something in the rules that I thought was <clears throat> never, I never thought of, but I guess it, mm-hmm. it, it's obvious when you think about it, you the mention of sortie rates, how many yeah, aircraft yeah. the Argentines had, uh, and the British mm-hmm. had 38, yet the, yet the British outsorted yeah. the Argentines, which is crazy. Yes. And, and, yeah, uh, by, by many, many times. Yes, yes. They just had much, much better ability to maintain their aircraft. Uh, you know, the aircraft would come back, they'd fix it for half an hour and send it back up into the sky. Yeah. And uh, and the uh, although they did get a big assist from the uh, from the Americans giving them some uh, air-to-air missiles that uh, yeah sidewinder missiles yeah, which were which were crucial yeah they they really needed those but um, so everybody and I I had mentioned it uh, every time I mention uh, Mrs Thatcher's war because I I uh, a friend of mine actually I was sitting I I had ordered it because I'll I'll order every game on the Falklands just because I want to see how okay. people are doing things. Um I'm I'm the same way. Yeah, there's a game from Close Simulations way back when uh that I owned. Yes. And yeah. Mayfair had a game. I don't think either of those games are very good. Um The Mayfair game could well be the worst war game ever published. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it, go on board game geek and read about it it's it's just hopeless yeah, it yeah. doesn't reflect anything having to do with the real war yeah okay well we were, we were agreeing with you. yeah it's 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 not it's not a good game uh the close simulations thing has a, has a bunch of rules problems that i i right. the, the less mentioned the less said about them the better but they exist and i own them uh so i got this game called where there is discord and mm-hmm. are you and you're familiar with it i am yes. okay uh and where there is Discord does this beautiful thing, I think, which is that it gives you a whole bunch of diplomatic situations and uh, forces you to react to each one and gives you sort of a, a almost a, a, a negative outcome each way. I mean, you can mitigate them, but there's but you're sort of under this constant pressure. And then it does this beautiful job with. Uh, in my opinion, the way that you set up your, uh, it's very tactical in the way you set up your ships mm-hmm. and, you know, the, <clears throat> the direction that the uh, Argentines are coming from their different bases, et cetera, et cetera. And then they, and, 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 and I should mention that they have, you know, there's a counter for every single ship and they're very right. beautiful and very nice and the whole thing's laid out beautifully. And then they get to the landing and then you land and then you're done. It's like it's it's like they read those Argentine books and said, "Oh yeah, well right. these are overwhelming forces. Of course we're going to win," which wasn't the case. And you do something very different, which is that you almost I would say that the the uh, the ground part of the game is at least as much a part of the game as the the, the naval part, maybe more. 
Um, yeah, re- really, it is more. Yeah, it's, um, and it, it's it's a hybrid system where the what goes on at sea is, in and in the air is very much based on the Dave Kershaw Vietnam solitaire system, as it was filtered through Don't Tread on Me, as was filtered through the Napoleonic Wars. The ground game is if you, if you dig under the surface, it's basically a states of siege game. Yes, it has uh, tracks you know, like the Victory that, yes. Point game series. That uh, you've got you've got three tracks and you have to advance along those tracks mm-hmm. and um, uh, you, there's not a lot of strategic you know you don't decide to attack north or south you're on one road right. that leads to Stanley mm-hmm. yeah go ahead but no exactly but you you have to make decisions right so I, one of the things that that mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I found very interesting was uh, you have these you've you've distilled the um, the whole British fleet to Two aircraft carriers and two escorts, and then of course the the the, the, the stuffed ships, the, the the ones that were commandeered. But right. but um, but those two escorts are huge because they're doing everything. Right. I mean, the, the the carriers are out there to 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 fly air cover, but the escorts have to cover the San Carlos water landings. They ha- they mm-hmm. can they can get on the gun line and bombard. Uh, but they have to su- right. they have to they have to support you. If, if if you're not if the escorts aren't there covering the landing, then you've got all these guys that are out of supply and they can't move. So. Right. Uh, the whole thing kind of comes together in a very interesting way, and you're you're under time pressures. Um, which... Right. Well, most most war games are, you know, can you deal with the pressures that you're under? And one of the things I wanted to do in in Mrs. Thatcher's War is you have very limited resources, and I wanted the player to really feel that that you're at the end of this eight thousand mile supply line, and you don't have a lot to play with, so you have to be very careful where you where you apply uh, your resources. And the escorts are. You know, an incredible simplification of a very complex thing, but I didn't want this to be a naval game per se. I wanted it to mainly concentrate on the ground war, but you've got to lay that logistical groundwork for what you're doing on the ground. Right, and you have to sort of, if you don't clear out the, um, the sort of Argentine, you, and you <clears throat> you sort of fudge the idea of of Argentine, you know, naval air groups, which is fine. Right. But, but but the point you're making is that if the British don't deal aggressively with those guys, then you're going to lose right. a carrier, and then you're, I mean, yeah. you're, you're sort of on the on the road to, to ruin uh, mm-hmm. if you if you don't spend your time dealing with that. Of course, that those results can go against you, but then you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to shift to you have to lay the sort of lay the groundwork for the landing and then you're going to have to sort of get to stanley in time uh so i think you're under a different kind of pressure than uh you know where there is discord uh sort of just assumes that the that the uh that the british land and then everything is going to be peachy um and the 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 uh, the application of your resources in the form of those escort vessels those those precious uh, escort vessels of which you only have two, or escort counters, they represent many ships. Right, of course. Those counters which you only have two. That really came about through playtesting that we decided uh, Stefan Nellen, who lives in Germany, mm-hmm. he's my developer for this game. Okay. You know, his fingerprints are all over this game. <laughs> um, he was really the one that drew my attention more to how can we use those escorts because there are several obvious things you can do with it. Let's not make it quite so obvious and let's make it so it's a real tough decision as to where you use them. Do you use them at sea to fight the Air Force? Do you use them at San Carlos as supply units? Do you use them uh, for naval gunfire support? Um, a lot of that was his influence. So what? I mean, and I think it made for a better game. Was there more? Was there more to the naval game than you're saying that then 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 ended up in the game that you you pared it down or or, or what? No, actually, um, that uh, I think we sort of increased the amount of naval stuff. When, when we decided to use to, to give the escorts more of a role, you know, more distinct roles, and of course you've only got two of them, so you can't mm-hmm. do a whole lot at the same time. Got it. Um, tell me about uh, everybody uses cards. You don't. Why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is just because um, the the production, the physical production of it. Although now, um, since Don't Tread on Me came out, White Dog Games does do cards. Yeah, Blue Panther and can so do it for that, them. Yes. Right, so that's an option uh, for future games. Um, I am working on another project with them right now. Whether it'll involve cards, I don't know. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've uh, there's a game we're working on. Uh, Wes Ernie and I are working on for um, Victory Point Games. Mm-hmm. It's a game on the expansion of Islam uh, in the, uh, the seventh and eighth centuries. Oh, very interesting. And that one is def- that's a state of, a classic states of siege game, okay. and it does use cards. So right. it's, it's a it's an inside out states of siege game. The, the player starts the game controlling the entire map, 
which stretches from Spain to China. Mm. And uh, the Muslims start in the, at the center point in Mecca and basically expand and try to drive you off the, off the board. Interesting. But, okay. Uh, so that's a, that's a card. That's a card. Uh, yeah. Card State, State 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 State. Siege, yeah. Does that. There's, uh, um, yep. uh, Ottoman sunset does that and that kind of thing. Um, right. is, is there anything else you can tease for us that, that you're doing or are you going to keep that under your hat? Um, well, we're, um, we're working on, we're working on the first Jihad, which is that, that expansion of Islam game, yeah. uh, with victory point games. Mm -hmm. We're working on a reissue, a complete redesign of our grand strategic World War One game, Death in the Trenches. Mm -hmm. Uh, we hope that that will be coming out sometime in 2018 from Compass Games. Oh, great. And then, um, for White Dog, I'm working on a, a game, which is, uh, a game on the the Civil War in Rhodesia. Oh, really? And the 19, in the 1970s. 1970s. Yeah, in the 1960s and 70s, which is in as I'm developing it or designing it, it's morphing more from a counterinsurgency game to a political game, where hmm. you know you're making cabinet level decisions on who to negotiate with and things like that, and it, it's going to be a very different different kind of game. Wow, that that sounds fascinating. I I always felt that there were, um, you know, the the uh, the African uh, bush wars never really got their uh, got their due. Uh, there's a fascinating stuff going on there, um, but um, all I ever see. I, is... I have this weird this weird fascination with Africa. I'd love to do an Ethiopia game okay. at some point, like a medieval game on the, the kingdom of Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. um, I did years ago. I did um, Liberia, or not? Yeah, Liberia um, descent into hell with uh, from. Oh gosh, I can't even remember the publisher now. Um, yeah, Liberia Descent into Hell is the name of the game. Okay. Fiery Dragon, that's the publisher. Fiery Dragon, and, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, that was um, the, my one experience with with war game uh, controversy because the, there's a lot of politically incorrect things in that game. Oh, I see. And uh, there's huge discussions of it on Board Game Geek. I'll have to look it up. And, uh, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. There's other. I mean, there's a ton of stuff you could do in uh, in. Uh... In Africa, you could do uh, Angola, you could do uh, right. yep. Con uh, Congo, you could do, I mean, heck, you could do the Algerian War of Independence. Um, there's only, right. I mean, there are only I two games Compa on that. Or, um, yeah, Compass Games has done one of those little folio games on the, the war in Congo. Have they? Yeah, I, be I believe so. Compass Games? i got to look that up, because I would love to get a Congo game. I, no, 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 not Compass. Um, uh, decision Games. Decision, yeah, decision Oh, no, Decision games. Folio? Okay, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I can look that right. up. Yeah, yeah, because... Uh, yeah, one small step has Brian trains Algeria, and then Brian trained in it. Yes. Yeah, Brian trains the Algeria guy. You got to you got to get in on that market. I hear it's very lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Train was actually my intro to publishing. Really? Tell uh, me about that. First game I ever first game I ever did. Uh, Wes Ernie and I did it back in about 2004, and it's a game I was published. It was actually the last game published by the Micro Game Design Group in mm -hmm. Canada. Yeah, and then Carrie it was Anderson. picked up by by Fiery Dragon. Correct. It was picked up by Fiery Dragon, and it's a game on the the Greek Turkish War after World War One. It's called Byzantium Reborn, hmm. which is essentially, in most of its mechanics, uh, an adaptation or a ripoff, with his permission, of Brian Train's system that he uses in Arriba España and um, Battle for China mm -hmm. and a number a number of his other games. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a that's a that's a tried and true uh, Brian trains. Brian Brian seems right. to get these 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 very clever uh, sort of dynamic systems, and then he uh, kind of tweaks them as as uh, as yeah. necessary for yep. the subject. It's it's, it's it's he does a great job with it. But but this I is about you. I would love to see Brian Train and Dave Kershaw <laughs> collaborate on a project because I think those two would really hit it off as designers. Uh, well, Dave Kershaw. They, they both approach games kind of the same way. Yeah, Dave Kershaw has this has a game about the time of troubles, I think, or at least there was a the, yeah, the, the which orange still trying to get published. Yeah, it's still trying to get published, yeah. and um, I, I I have the the print and play version of that game, which is several years old. Yeah, I, but, I saw. I think um, that's where I saw working, it. Working I think he's working with with White Dog. Oh, but I hope he there is. There were some issues. Yeah, there's some issues involving. I think some of it. I think was issues involving copyright for some of the photos that he used in his rule book. So oh, I, I don't know all the details, but yeah, that's that's a game, and it, it's got a brilliant little feature in it where you you're you're the Irish player. You build up your forces, but you have to be really careful in building up your forces because if you build all your best units, mm -hmm. when you do become independent, your best units go off and side with Devalera, and so <laughs> you end up on the you know your opponent ceases to be the British. Now he's 
the anti-treaty forces in the Civil War, in the oh. Irish Civil War, and he gets to take all your best armies. So it, it, it's a really clever design. Wow. I, I'm, uh, okay, I have to, uh, I have to look, I have to look this up, um, and also have to write to Michael Kennedy and tell him to please publish this mm -hmm. game so that I can buy it. But, uh, well, Irish Freedom, that's the name. Irish of the Freedom. Game. Okay. Oh, so it was the Irish, Irish Civil War, because I think there was that he was talking. He was he was talking. He was a, the he was talking. There was a, a game he was making about the uh, the troubles in the 70s, 60s and seventies. Uh, oh, okay. And and he also had that one, one. I don't know. Yeah, but. he was doing something in there. There was there was one where you, he was actually. Um, uh, doing the, the the orange order was was marching and you it was like a like a uh, like you had to i can't remember you had to like get get home or you had to avoid all the violence on the march or something it was, it was, <laughs> it's fascinating yeah so anyway that's, that's, that shows you what war games can do but uh, but anyway enough about that because i want to talk about you but uh, i think we're a little out of time uh, we are going to need to get you back on because okay. i am okay. going to uh um i i don't have um uh n yet but I will, okay. and then I'm going to go through it. I mean, I have I've read the rules, but uh, I haven't, I haven't okay. actually played it. Uh, so I want to do that, and I want to talk to you again. Um, I have I, I've had Don't Try on Me for a long time. I've played that in the past, and then I just okay. I just did uh, I just got um, Mrs. Thatcher's War not too long ago, and then I finally sat down and played it uh, several times, okay. and I uh, was fascinated. Okay. So which is why I got you on, but. Uh, Ben, it's great to talk to you. Uh, keep making games. Um, they're I, always I interesting. Okay, and uh, we will have you on again. Thank you very much for showing up. That sounds great. I got the chance to play Mrs. Thatcher's War myself, and after talking to Ben Madison about the game, I sat down with it again and have some more thoughts. I really like how the game isn't just about the naval campaign, unlike where there is Discord, which just assumes that if the landing succeeds, the war's over. It shares something with Ben's Napoleonic game, N, which is that if you get a certain set of die rolls early on, it can upset the pace of the game because the AI doesn't build up the necessary momentum. And in a solitary game, you need to be fighting that momentum or the game will just feel like a procedural exercise. But I'm okay with the occasional dud game because I know that this is part of luck, which is what drives unknown outcomes and unknown outcomes, and luck, are part of history. Now, I got the rare chance to play Mark Herman's Pacific War last month. A friend of mine and I took a couple of evenings to play first an engagement and then a battle, and then spent two full days playing a campaign. These are all different levels of involvement in the core game. A battle is basically just one set of tactical moves and the combat that results from those, while an engagement is just the combat from one round of a battle. And these were really just rules runs through for us, though, making sure we knew what we were doing before we played a campaign scenario, which from our perspective is the point of the game. It seems to be the point of the game from the designer's perspective as well, as I talked with Mark Herman about Pacific Theater games on a podcast a couple of years ago, and he mentioned that the strategic game in Pacific War doesn't really hold together. The game is, at heart, an operational-level game. And what a game it is. My game with my friend Don turned out to be one of my favorite gaming experiences of the past few years. Pacific War was designed in 1985, yet it feels like a game from just a few years ago. The systems are so refined and fit together so well, unlike a lot of other games from 1985, that I think this is proof that Mark Herman is one of the truly elite war game designers of all time, on the level of John Butterfield or Frank Chadwick. And I want to highlight the word war game here, because that's the feeling I got from every second of Pacific War, that I was playing a war game. Move the ships, fly the planes, roll the dice, mark the hits. No blocks or cards or meeples or area movement. I know it's fashionable to ooh and ah over slick design, and believe me, I appreciate games that allow me to do things like play out all of the 100 years war in 10 minutes, but games that firmly fit the war game rubric and still deliver well-paced narrative that is driven by hexes, combat factors, and die rolls that refer to a chart are a real treasure. Enrico Viglino, whom you've probably met online as Callendale, said something once that I really agree with which is that the definition of a war game is anything that seems like it's a war game to him. And I know exactly what he means. I'll defend designs like Churchill and the coin system forever against charges that they aren't war games. But I'm also not going to lie and say that when I want a real war game, I know what I want, and it really isn't those things. So add Dean Essig to that list of elite designers of history, because OCS is something that I know will be a war game as soon as it comes out of the box. But one of the things I find essential in a war game is randomness, or luck. 
Our game of Pacific War sure did have some luck involved. On the one turn that my Japanese had to marshal their ops points and retake Guadalcanal, Don rolled Ambush CV as the operational level intel condition by first rolling a 9 on a d10, which was the only way he could have gotten to strat off 4, and then a 0 on a d10, which is the only way he could have gotten Ambush CV, which was only available at strat ops 4. If you do the complex mathematics on that one, that's a 1% chance of that happening. Yet on a 1% chance, I basically had my best chance for victory essentially nullified. On our rematch, I resigned on turn 1, after my invasion of Guadalcanal as the U.S. sank the two Japanese cruisers that contested the landing, but failed to get any U.S. troops ashore due to a result that had a 4% likelihood of happening. We also only had about another 8 hours of game time left, so it was unlikely we would be able to get very far in a third game. That's what happens when you invest a lot of time in a real war game. Another game I got to play recently, which probably is not a war game if you hold it to the standard I just discussed, but it's definitely a war game if you're trying to make some exclusionary argument about people's taste in games, is Time of Crisis. I've played this game four or five times now, and it strikes me as a game which requires players to give up a lot of psychological predispositions that infect a lot of other games, such as holding grudges and defending territory that has no gameplay benefit to you, but still has emotional meaning of some sort. If you start in Pannonia, for example, don't think that it means anything to you. It's just a province. Hispania, Macedonia, Gaul, and every other name on the board is just that, a name. You can't hold a grudge against someone just because they took your starting province from you, because if you do, and start attacking that person out of spite, you're just giving the game to someone else. Time of Crisis is the perfect example of a game in which you need to make the absolutely logical move every time, regardless of who just hurt your feelings by attacking your undefended province because you left it that way. Some guy just placed a governor in Italian and became emperor? Attack him. Sure, the guy next to you is a jerk. Don't play with him next time. But for now, the guy in Italia is going to be getting a ton of legacy each turn and build a, building up his turns as emperor bonus until you stop him. If the same guy ends up suggesting to you that you gang up on another player and it makes sense, do it. This isn't how a lot of people play games, which is a sociological proof of why many gamers could not have also been successful Roman emperors. You really need to decide on each turn what makes the most sense, and the other players also need to do this. Otherwise, you get the runaway emperor result. But you know what you also can't do? You can't complain about luck. Time of Crisis probably frustrates a lot of pure Euro gamers, like the Rally in the Valley guys, for example, with its use of dice for combat, especially the open-ended mechanism that can lead to some pretty extreme results. But I'm okay with that, even if it drives a negative result in a game that I've planned for three months and traveled 3,000 miles to play. Because in the end, randomness feels more comfortable to me than determinism. Deterministic game mechanics have always bothered me in military simulations, and while you can argue forever about whether a preponderance of certain factors like armor and artillery guarantees a certain outcome, all I can say is that without some level of randomness, the ability to guarantee a result, or at least know what a result will be based on other actions, feels very wrong to me without some other significant random component to the game. It's why I love the aesthetics behind Napoleon's triumph while disliking the actual gameplay. Random numbers are a part of that essential what-if of history that keeps alive the idea that before a historical event happened, no one knew just how it was going to turn out. You can make all the arguments you want that certain things in war were preordained as soon as so-and-so's tanks crossed whatever river, but the fact that I can watch that in a game makes me feel less like I'm watching history unfold and more like I'm reading someone's graduate thesis, which in some cases is fine, CF Bill Eklund, but in most cases isn't. And if you're asking why I don't like Napoleon's triumph even though the unit identities are hidden until combat happens, the answer is that for various reasons, wargames have a limited number of playable lines, unlike chess for example. And once you set up, especially in a game like Napoleon's triumph, the direction of play can only go a few different ways. So once you're committed, you're committed, so to speak. Which is probably how it was at some point in the battle for Napoleon as well. But for me, the essence of history is that no one knows how it will turn out. So when I'm replaying it, at all costs, I don't want to feel like the outcome was predetermined. That's just how it is. The Norns can twine their threads elsewhere. And that's it for this time. Next time, we'll do a rundown of my summer wargaming to this point. I'll have a few interesting games under my belt by then, including some of the new releases. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel, number 15.